what the WGA is asking for is only 2% of all of entertainment profits that they are making off our backs, off of what we write. They would not have these profits if we didn't write shows that then were going to be made. So 2% and, of profits is all you're at? That's like, they won't even give you that? So, no. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We're doing a very special episode about the WGA strike that's happening in Hollywood right now. It's still ongoing, and we have a special guest with us, Christina Wu. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Christina Wu. Um, I am primarily a television writer. I moved out here um, nine years ago from New York. I started my career in independent film, but now I'm a TV writer. Um, I've written on The Affair, Halston, Players, and A Million Little Things. Um, and yeah, I you know this is now going into week two of the strike. Uh, I am a campaign captain, and what that means is leading up to last week, midnight May 1st, that's when our deal with the AMPTP expired. Uh, we as a union, WGA, have a, it's called a minimum basic, a minimum basic agreement. Um, it's basically sort of rules and guidelines uh, for pay and residuals and sort of how we get compensated. Um, this deal gets renegotiated every three years. So the last time this was negotiated or renegotiated, it was in 2020, but obviously during the pandemic, there was, you know, there was not much leverage that anyone had. None of us were working. So like the threat of a strike wasn't scary. But now uh, in 2023, um, you know, I can obviously we'll dive into like what the strike is about and what we're fighting for. But um, it feels very existential because it not only feels like we kind of are making up for negotiating time that we didn't have in 2020 because there was no no one had any leverage. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like we're at like a really kind of crazy precipice in terms of technological advances, advancements with AI and also just the way um streaming has affected how people earn a living or are not earning a living um and trying to kind of turn this kind of giant ship around on how pay for writers has been chipped away at how the sort of normal apprenticeship that comes along with working on a television show has been chipped away at and just to let you guys know i'm i'm way more well-versed in talking about the television side of it. I know a little bit about the screenwriting side of it. Um, I'm also a screenwriter. Um, but, like, comedy variety, like, I know I'm still sort of educating myself on those aspects. Like, there are multiple sort of sectors of the business that is being negotiated right now. But sort of the biggest part is sort of falling on television and, and film, but a lot of it is on television because a lot of how just sort of like the structure of our work has been going on in the past few years is really kind of like devolved from how it used to be. Now, before we get more into the writer's strike, we'd love to ask our listeners to please, if you have a moment to leave us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify, this goes a long way to helping us reach new listeners on both those platforms. 
And if you leave us an amazing five-star review on Apple, we will shout you out on the episode. And Spotify just started adding polls and Q&As to the episode. So we posted a question about this to hear your opinion. So be sure to leave a response in our Spotify poll. Also, it's a great way to support us by going to our Patreon and joining one of our many tiers. Thanks so much to all of you for supporting our show. And with television, speaking about things like writers' rooms and how a writer can get into a writers' room and work their way up towards being a more established writer, that's coming into effect and it's being affected negatively? Yes. So a writers' room is uh, for television. Um, it is literally a room filled with people led by a showrunner, sometimes two showrunners, sometimes a, a creator and a showrunner, depending on who created the show and what everyone's experience is. But it is a group of people who, at the showrunner's leadership, all create a show together. So that is everything from talking about, like, large overarching themes of, like, what the show is about, what the showrunner sees as like you know if they see it as going for multiple seasons like really mapping out sort of the macro of what the story of whatever the show is down to the nitty-gritty of literally talking about like every single scene every single beat that happens in every single individual episode and so in my experience I've worked on um I've worked in writers rooms as small as four writers uh, that was on Halston, uh, but that was also, that was a limited series. So, and it was always only going to be five or six episodes. So, I guess one could argue that the room size being small that is like more normal. But every other show I've worked on um, has been at least sort of ten people in the room, mm -hmm. including the showrunners, not including support staff. Um, and so, I the way I got into uh, my first writer's room, which was The Affair, I started as the showrunner's assistant. Um, that's sort of the normal way to kind of rise up because it is both an assistant job and sort of an apprentice job. There are four roles in the support staff kind of cohort that support any writer's room. Writer's PA, showrunner's assistant, writer's assistant, script coordinator. Okay. Writer's PA is the person who does the very important but often thankless task of getting everyone lunch. And everyone laughs, laughs and we all make jokes about like, oh, we take forever to like pick lunch. But like, it is a hard, if you were like, if you have a, the last room that I was in was 17 people. Wow, wow. Now that was on Zoom. If we were all in person, it's like, good luck to that writer's PA. I mm -hmm. hope they have help, you know. Sometimes us deciding what to get for lunch. I know. Like, oh, no, I want hell. that, but no, I need oh that. My God. Exactly. <laughs> so times that by, you know. A lot. A lot of other people. <laughs> it can be very stressful. Um, the showrunner's assistant, um, it's exactly what it sounds like. You assist the showrunner. So when I was on the affair, that meant anything from getting my boss literally from like prep meeting to prep meeting, making sure she was on time, getting to set to the writer's room, um, helping her sort of organize her day, helping her understand or not helping her understand, but like getting her oriented in terms of like what is happening every day in order to make the show run. Uh, the writer's assistant, which I then also did on the affair, which is my personal favorite role, you're in the writer's room physically with everyone and you're taking notes on what everyone says. And the purpose of that is so that when writers go off to write their outlines, write their scripts, they can revert back to the room notes that you've taken because they're too busy thinking, taking their own notes, sort of, gotcha. you know, pitching. You are the sort of 
you're the you're the stenographer kind of of the room and so a good writer's assistant will not only take what everyone is talking about but sort of synthesize it get rid of the chaff organize it in a way that's helpful to the writers when they go to refer back to those notes for when they write and then the script coordinator is um i think it's the technically hardest job in terms of what you have to do and in the time crunch that you have to do it. So anytime there's a new draft of anything, whether it be an outline, a script, a story area, um, you know, everyone in the production and often, you know, your executives at whatever network and studio you're at, they have to read these new drafts to give notes or even just to like see what the changes are so that everyone is aware of what is happening with the production. Before that gets published and goes wide to everyone, the script coordinator has to not only edit the document that they've received for like, you know, spelling mistakes, grammar and stuff like that, but also making sure like, did this change from the last uh, version of the thing that I read? You're checking for like continuity, you're checking for not only continuity within the episode, but like across the season. You're sort of like, you're helping the showrunner be sort of the brain trust of like the show's logic almost. So I say all this to, that is how nearly all of my friends kind of entered into television and that is how we rose up we did these assistant jobs and as you're doing this hopefully your showrunner your boss is allowing you to participate in the room allowing you to pitch hopefully they've read your sample and at a certain point it's like maybe you get promoted to staff writer or you get a freelance script that you get to write all things that are helping you build towards becoming a professional writer in the like 90s and maybe even 80s I, I know that there were these assistant jobs that still existed in the room, but you hear a lot of stories or I heard a lot of stories about how people could just kind of break into television by like writing a spec script of like Seinfeld and either you get it to the people at Seinfeld or another comedy. And if they like your like they like your voice and they like the fact that you know how to like mimic the voice of another show, then you'd get a freelance script or you'd get hired. It was like I don't I don't know what it was like to work in that time, obviously, but it was it. And I don't want to say it was like easier or harder. Sure, I don't yeah. know. But. but it was like based on merit in a way. And like I, I wrote this and that can get me into it where now it's like kind of climbing a ladder. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there was still ladder climbing because there's also um, there are level every title that a writer has is like. Is in a hierarchy. So the the entry level writing position in any writer's room is called the staff writer. And then it's story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, I want to say consulting producer. There's like a bunch of like producer titles that <laughs> is, is sometimes... this, Does this make up like a large writer's room, all those different parts of the hierarchy? So that is an interesting question. It should. Mm-hmm. Um, a big problem that we can either save for later or talk about now is... Let's get into it. Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the sort of sticking... So I guess to like back up, the mm-hmm. reason why we're striking right now is because we, uh, the WJ, you know, we, all the members filled out a survey, I guess, last year that basically just asked all of us, like, how's your career going? What are the challenges you're experiencing? What are the obstacles you, you've bumped up against? What are your frustrations? What are the things you're happy with? And so, after all WJ members responded to the survey, that allowed the negotiating committee, which is also just made up of other writers, um, they read every single 
survey response and we're able to find patterns in what people are happy with, but more importantly, what people are unhappy with. And so one, you know, one huge thing that people, a lot of TV writers, most TV writers are unhappy with is this thing called the mini room, which has cropped up, I would say in the past years and become more normalized. Um, so like I described, a normal writer's room could be anywhere from honestly, like eight to, you know, 20 people, especially if you're on a network show that has 20 episodes a season. That's a lot of not only like scripts that you have to turn out, but just like there's just more moving parts. So you need more writers writing stuff all at the same time and working on different things all at the same time in order to get these scripts ready to be produced and shot. Mm -hmm. um, a mini room is this like weird half step where a lot of studios are saying, you, you pitched us the show that we're interested in, we like, but maybe we're not sure about, like maybe we're not gonna pick it up just yet. Because normally people, when you pitch a show, it will be bought, you'd be paid to write the pilot, and then maybe after the pilot they would decide, and then maybe they'd shoot the pilot. Like that's, when you hear about pilot season, or when you heard about pilot season um, and you heard about like pilots that were made that then were not, did not go forward. Uh, it was sort of like the pilots, like the proof of concept for a show. Or a lot of times shows are picked up to series, which means that I'm pitching a show and they're like, great, we're buying it. We're going to pay you to, you know, like there's no sort of intermediate step of like, do we like the pilot? Like yeah. we like your concepts. We're going to, let's do it. I just saw Greta Gerwig starred in How I Met Your Father pilot. Yes. That got picked up for the pilot, but then they ended up not taking the show on. So they right. made the pilot a whole episode with her as the lead. Right. And they just never did it. What year was that? 2007-ish, oh, I wow. think? 2008? And that's wild to me. Yeah. I almost am, like, thankful for that because yeah, then maybe we would career. not have gotten, yeah. like, Lady Bird yeah, yeah. or Little Women or and Plus, that show, was, that show was just, like, kind of a diamond in the rough. I love How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. And that cast just works so well. So maybe it was the yeah. best But that's something parties. we don't hear about. So many shows, they get the pilot, they'll shoot it, but then the network or streamer won't end up picking it up. So that's an example of that. That yeah. feels like a very sort of network thing uh -huh. too. Um, like to ABC, streaming? NBC, Fox. Yeah, like yeah. the the major networks. Um, less so on cable, I think, but I could be wrong about oh, that. Oh, like as opposed to like FX or AMC I could networks. be wrong about that. I mm -hmm. feel like places like that or like HBO, they have more of a, they have a longer sort of development process where like you pitch a show they buy it, but then maybe instead of making you just write a pilot and then producing it and then seeing how it goes, maybe you're in development for like a year or two to really kind of not only hash out the pilot, but like really understand what the show can be. And then they decide. Gotcha. Sort of HBO's like anecdotally, I think. They I've didn't do heard... a pilot of Sopranos and we're like, <laughs> mm, I don't know, guys. <laughs> yeah, they made like, the whole make season. David Chase kind of yeah. like set on pins and needles. Um, so the thing with these mini rooms is that um, a lot, especially streamers, but maybe other places too, um, they will, it's sort of like a half step. It's sort of a hedge, right? It's like, we like this idea. So let's get, instead of having a full writer's room with like eight or 10 people, we'll give you like four writers. And a normal, um, I would say, in my experience, on like a 10 episode show, 
a writer, the writer's room period is like 20 weeks. That's sort of standard. Now on a, a network show that has 20 episodes, it's obviously longer. It'd be like 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, in a mini room, it's like, okay, we're going to give you half the amount of writers. We're going to do half the amount of time. So maybe 10 weeks, maybe less. But we're still going to have you figure out the entire season and maybe write the first half of the season scripts. And then we'll decide. And the problem with this is that not only is that it's just cutting everything in half and at the knees, but it's also um, because it's pre-green light, there are like, we don't have rules in our agreement that govern what people should be paid. We only have rules in our agreement that govern greenlit television shows. So it's not applicable to a mini room. Right. So basically then we have minimums though. So then they're like, we'll just pay you the minimum. So then where it becomes dicey is that let's say I'm a showrunner and especially like a first time showrunner, like I've sold my first show. Thank God. But they're like, you've got to do a mini room and we're only giving you four writers. So if I'm being given, if I'm sort of being backed into this corner, if everyone's being paid the same, a minimum amount, Mm -hmm. Math-wise, it's like, well, I'm going to get the most experienced people I can who are interested in this show, interested in my idea, who I think we would work well together to do this mini room. That's excluding low-level writers. That's excluding I'm a mid-level writer because even though maybe I could be a perfect fit writing-wise, personality-wise, I don't have as much experience as like a co-EP as someone who's already run a show and you're getting them for like a bargain, basement bargain price. So that's creating, that's one very kind of, can I curse on this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucked up situation (laughs) where that's like a whole sector of writers that's being iced out of work. Um, So in a way, it's like they're saying, okay, it would take like a dozen people to build this house for six months and they all get paid pretty well. What we're gonna do instead is we're gonna have four people build a house with a minimum wage in a fraction of the time. Yes. And try to get the same- Precisely. And and same output, half the the employees. Yes, and if I'm a first time showrunner, it's like, well, I'm not stupid, right? I want my show to get made, but I don't have any power necessarily to advocate for like, I want a full room, I want to be able to hire a whole range of different writers. You know, I'm not Shonda Rhimes. Like, she has a track record. I'm not someone with a track record. So I feel like especially first, second-time showrunners are getting squeezed. And this is only just one of the many issues that we're kind of battling against. You know, I know that our jobs sound very glamorous. They're not. But because, you know, we know names like Shonda Rhimes and um, Ryan Murphy, like we know about like very, very, like Tyler Perry, very famous, very rich showrunner level people who are writers. That is not the average experience of the regular middle class writer in Hollywood. We're all just trying to, first of all, we, you know, we don't have like the job security that people have at like, you know, you work at an office at a healthcare company. Obviously every job has its own instabilities, but we don't get, you know, we're not salaried. Like people who like go to an office, that's where they get their pension and health. That's where they get their benefits from. That's, they know that they're getting a paycheck every week. They don't have to worry every 20 weeks where their next job is coming from. 
So because this job is freelance and I, and I also know how it sounds like we all chose to work in this. Like this is not a complaint. Like we all, we all know what bed we made, yeah, yeah. but now that we're here and sometimes you have. This episode is brought to you by visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A great year, like in 2021 going into 2022, I worked on two shows back to back. And that was like kind of a first for me. Like usually there's a little bit of time between one show ending and then getting onto another job. I got really lucky. There was sort of like I could just hop from one to the other. Um, And that's very lucky. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, I finished my first staff job on Halston in January 2020. I did not work all of 2020 because of COVID. Now, COVID obviously is like a, that's an extenuating circumstance. But even minus COVID, for all the reasons we've already talked about, like mini rooms and just all these sort of changing models of how these studios and streamers think that they can like run rooms or fund rooms. You might not get into another room for another year because uh, you might, you know, there are only so many shows being made. Um, Maybe you have representation. Maybe, you know, there's so many reasons why maybe you won't have another job for another year. Those residual checks help keep you afloat while you're not earning those weekly paychecks when you're in a writer's room or when you sold a movie idea and you're writing that movie script. Um, That money keeps you afloat. Um, so that's sort of like the, the importance of residual check. Um, and if you work on a show like, you know, the dream would be to work on a show like The Office or Parks and Rec or, you know, Law and Order because that sh- those shows are constantly rerun multiple, multiple seasons. Set for life. Set for life. Yeah. That's not happening anymore with the advent of limited series, with the fact that And then from these mini, let's say I did a mini room on my show and the studio network were like, great, we'll do it. We're not going to hire any more people. You and the other three people that we, that we like forced together for you because we didn't let you have a full room. You're going to have to finish the rest of the season on your own. Um, And so that's like, I wasn't able to hire other writers and allow them to have that opportunity to share in profits. And I think the thing with streaming is like, you know, 
all these streamers, they they now are kind of having like huge movies that are doing really well in streaming. If those movies were shown in movie theaters, the writer, like anyone above the line would get profit participation if that movie does well. That's not happening here. And so it's kind of... Because there isn't like a, a box office return. Right. There isn't advertising revenue. Right. It's the streaming membership monthly yes. that, that we pay for to have Netflix or to have HBO Max. That's what they're getting their revenue from. So they don't have to, they don't have anything to like say, like, oh, we owe you this. Yeah. Because this film performed this well. So you deserve this much money. Right. With this, it's like, oh, we have it. It's ours. It's on our platform. And we, we paid you to, a flat we paid fee. You for essentially. The, we paid you for it. There's no reason to keep paying you because it's right. already on the app. It's something like The Office, it's getting residuals from commercials right. and advertising. That's where a lot of your money's coming from, as well as I'm sure licensing and, agreements yeah. when it yeah. pops around platforms. I don't want to just focus on residuals, though. That is a huge part of this. But I would say the larger reason why we're striking is kind of more existential. Um, the sort of pipeline of how television you historically has gotten made is a little bit broken. And then you mix in the AI of it all. Um, it's, it, it is a recipe for disaster. It is a recipe for turning what is already should be a career into like more of gig work. And there's, this is not a, a slight against gig work or people who do that, but like we all entered into this, with the promise and knowledge that people have been able to make careers out of this job, out of this profession, you able to feed your family and buy a home, uh, have health insurance, have pension. Um, these things are kind of going away. And I would say, I don't know. I like, I'm on not, not on the negotiating committee, so I can't like gauge what's more or less pressing. And for everyone, every writer, sort of the, everyone has sort of a, like a slightly different set of concerns or maybe sure. a different set of concerns, but things like, you know, there's a really big issue now, again, I think brought on by the advent of streaming. Normally a writer's room, you start, uh, it's just the room, you know, you're blue skying and then you start getting into scripts. And then at a certain point production starts to happen on the show while the room is still happening. That is not really happening anymore. The writer's room is getting temporally and physically separated from production. And that is a problem because a very cool and also necessary part of being a television writer is also being a producer. Um, whenever an episode gets produced, it really helps to have the writer of that episode on set to kind of help guide what is going on in that story. I would say, because the, I don't know, I'm happy to go into it more. The sort of difference between like features and TV is that in features, the director is sort of the person in charge, whether they wrote the script or not, they're the person in charge. They're the ones like making all the decisions about the film, its creative direction, everything. In television, that is the showrunner. The showrunner created the show. It is their vision that's being carried out. And a lot of times on television shows, um, different directors just come in and out to direct an episode here or an episode there. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe they've received all the scripts leading up to their episode. Maybe they haven't. It depends on every show has its own sort of protocol. So things like 
you know, a director reading a script, I'm like, oh, do we need this line? And then the writer, it's like, actually, you do. This thing, like, sets up something that happens in two scenes gotcha. or in three episodes. This is actually, like, a pivotal moment that maybe, you know, it sets up, like, the end of the show. Like, because the writer is in the room, we're there for the entire length of figuring out what the show is. They are the continuity point. And not only that, but... um you know, it's there's a lot of fighting going on right now and a lot of debate between the studios and the WGA about showrunners' responsibilities. I don't know if you guys saw. A lot of these big studios and networks are sending letters to their showrunners being like, um, you actually can't strike. You actually have to continue to fulfill, like, personal work obligations to the show, non-writing producing obligations to the show. But the problem is, is that... They're like saying you can't double dip. Right, yeah. but... Well, the, no, the studios are saying you have to keep working. Mm -hmm. You cannot strike. It's in violation of your contract. But the WJ is saying all these sort of... What the studios perceive as non-writing producing uh, duties, it's writing. That You know, like, you can go through the list of what it is. It's like... Editing, that is writing. If you have to cut out a scene, you have to think about what the episode is and piece together it's a scene to scene. It's storytelling. Yeah. If you're on set and a location falls through and the scene that's supposed to take place at that location, maybe they find another one, but like that new setting maybe doesn't make sense for the story that's being told. You need to rewrite it. All these things are... It's disturbing to see the studios kind of either not understand or not care that there is writing every step of the way from being in the writer's room to post in editing. And so, I, I don't know. I'm sort of like rambling right now, but like... No, it's fascinating. It's a podcast. It's what we do. I know. <laughs> yeah. And it, se it seems like, I mean, I think the corporate culture of America in every industry has had this pattern of uh, after the lockdowns and over the course of the lockdowns, there's been a greater separation of wealth from those on the very top to those on the bottom of whatever industry. And I think that this is another example of that where people at the very top are are still profiting and even so, in profiting even more so than ever before. Yeah. Record profits you mm -hmm. hear from every industry. Record profits, record profits, record yeah. profits. And yet workers and lower class citizens are making less and less and less. Yep. And so it seems like this is another example of the gap really extending further to a point where the people who are physically doing all the work, most of the work, yeah. they're getting breadcrumbs in comparison to the people who are at the very top making decisions. It's a crazy... Um... The statistic I'm about to share is truly mind-boggling. What the WGA is asking for in advances, not only in minimums, but in, like, writing a lot of these, like, residual wrongs and all these other things. There's one other thing that I really want to get into talking about. What we're asking for is only 2% of all of entertainment profits that they are making off our backs, off of what we write. They would not have these profits if we didn't, write shows that then were going to be made. Um, you know, if they wanted to run on a model of just like, sure, like operate off your library, make reality television, they would have already done it. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's not profitable or people really want, they like sitting down after work, 
turning on their show, hanging out with their friends that they've gotten to know over multiple seasons. And that is created by writers. And the fact that there is like an utter disregard for the fact that we are generating the stories that generate literally billions of dollars worth of uh, income for these companies and for them to turn around and cry poverty to us is is really um it's insulting so two percent of profits is all you're at this like they won't even give you that so no and so it so the way so like i it's sort of like a crazy it a lot of things go into this number one of the things is like so what i was talking about the the problem with the writer's room being separate from production and writers needing to go to set to produce their episodes one from a more kind of not even philosophical but just like this industry television writing used to be kind of an apprenticeship like the more you work the more experience you'll get the more set time you'll get and that's not happening the most set time i got or i've had in my career was when i was an assistant i got to produce my episode of the affair that i wrote in the very last season and every single job i've had after that which is professional writing jobs. I've never gotten to go to set for any of my episodes because of this separation. Well, one of them was the that one of them was COVID was happening, so I understood like they couldn't And, send and then so but working on set is a way to becoming a showrunner, right? It is because you are learning producing is problem solving and producing is um it is learning how to close the gap between the theoretical thing you wrote and physically making it like let's say i wrote the scene we're all sitting in this room or like okay i wrote a scene of like three podcasters sitting in a room <laughs> but the way i wrote it it's like it's a gorgeous studio and there's you know i don't know it's one thing to write it but then it's another thing for location to be like we couldn't quite find <laughs> the room you were looking for but here are our options how can we make this work sure it's any it's everything from that to learning how to watch actors performances and interact in, interact with your director and give notes. It's oh shit, we lost this location. Can we cut the scene? Do we need it? If we need it, can we move it to another day? How or can we rewrite this scene to like include that information? It's it's a pipeline for you to learn how to eventually learn, run your own show. And that's a whole other problem that is also happening, which is because people aren't getting this training, there is now a dearth of diverse showrunners. Everyone wants a diverse showrunner, but then it's like, but we can't find any. It's like, because you're not promoting any of us. You're not sending any of us. We're not getting the experience we need to be considered as showrunners. Um, also, on a just like practical level that I don't think people realize, most television shows, whenever you're in production, it's not just you're shooting episode four. You're shooting episode four, but you're also prepping episode five. You're in post for episode three, and you're probably not only rewriting the current episode that's being shot to fit, you know, location things, actor stuff, whatever, but rewriting the next episode because you're in prep and you're realizing that you couldn't get the location that you wanted or you could, but you only have it for a day. So you need to like cut that scene in half. So it's like, and then you're in post for the, the episode you just shot. So you're giving notes on a cut. Practically speaking, if 
uh, if studios are only like allowing a showrunner and maybe one other person to like be on set and do all this, that's like not possible to do all that work at the same time. That's why you need to be able to deputize your writer's room to like, okay, you wrote episode three, it's shooting now, you're going to set. You wrote episode four, you're doing all the prep meetings and report back to me. I wrote episode two, it's in post, I can report to you on how the cut's going. Like it is a, it is a practical division of labor that I think showrunners are really like, they're at their wit's end. They're like, we want help. Yeah. You know, I know that there are some, you know, or there always be a tour showrunners who like, they wrote it, they directed it, they're doing it all. And that's great. But that is not the majority of what we're doing here. And so. In a way, it's, so it's existential things like that of like, it is like the chain, like the, 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 the system by which television has been made that was efficient and effective. It's being cut down to save on cost. And it's preventing people from being able to grow and evolve yes. in their careers and yes. to become what they are setting out to become. Yeah. And my, so a question I have then is, since they're eliminating the connection between the writers and the producers and showrunners, who is majorly getting these roles as showrunners, experienced showrunners who already have it in their past and they just keep getting hired for gigs as opposed to people traditionally rising through the ranks and working their way up to becoming showrunner? Do they just keep going to the same old hands for these shows lately? I think it's a little bit of both. Plus a lot of filmmakers are becoming showrunners. That's yeah, true, yeah. Which is cool. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think we should be excluding people from, or like, and like playwrights and yeah. poet, you know, I, if you have an amazing story to tell and you can sell it, that's great. The problem though is that it's less and less people doing more and more jobs. Um, and also putting a ceiling on them. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, on the, on the one hand, an amazing thing with streaming is that because there just needs to be more content by by definition of more, there's just more diversity in storytelling. In addition to thankfully, finally, we're starting to talk about diversity in society, in all industries that includes entertainment letting more and new and underrepresented voices in. Um, but the problem is, especially with this sort of like broken pipeline of people not getting to go to set, you know, let's say I, I'm selling a show or once the strike ends, I will resume selling my show. Um, let's say I get to, I would likely be paired with another more experienced showrunner which is great i've never run a show before but sometimes they're like yeah it's cheaper you you know like you got it we like your vision you can do it but if you've never run a show before like i don't know it's like anything else the first time you do it there are going to be things that you're good at and things that you're not good at and the studios can then turn around and point to like oh well you know, we tried. You couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle because it. Because you didn't get the experience when you needed. Exactly. It's a, it's an Orosporus. Mm -hmm. um, and it all comes down to money. And the crazy thing is, is that a lot of the things that, we're, that we want to codify in this, like, new MBA and just get in writing, just, like, have the rules, are, like, things that used to be normal. Things that, like, a writer's room. Like, a normal-sized writer's room. And now these companies are pushing back. Now, what I think is interesting is that, you know, the legacy comp media companies versus purely streaming companies, like, they have, like, slightly different 
business plans. They have different models. They have different philosophies on how they want to run their business. So I don't know. Maybe there are I don't and I don't know what it's like amongst what everyone is like in the AMPTP, obviously. But I wouldn't be surprised to hear if there was disagreements between how people want to go about addressing the deal we came to the table with because what's what works for you know abc broadcast network certainly doesn't work for i don't know netflix but either way all these companies are making so much money off of the things that we have created and i don't think it's unfair to ask for a share in that profit and also just to be paid fairly. So, yeah, and the technology is really interesting because it seemed like obviously it's affecting every corporate world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go to the convenience store now. I didn't realize I worked there. I got to scan and bag my own stuff, you know, or a grocery store. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of, I feel like now it's finally hitting writers and TV and entertainment where they're trying to kind of like push some of you out. And now, the threat of AI technology mm -hmm. and that's on the table now too. I think I would say that's like kind of like the biggest existential threat. If in 2007, the, the existential threat was not getting the internet, AKA streaming. Cause at the time back then they were like, let, don't worry about the internet. Let's reconvene every year or so and see how this technology has progressed. AKA when it's too late to actually like do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So the version of that now in 20. 23 is AI. It's scary. I mean, we've dabbled with a little bit of AI. We've had some fun segments. A friend of ours has an AI company. He like uh, generated our voices with AI and they made funny like moments on the show. It's, it's actually really interesting. Are you getting money for that? No, but there's a lot of pros and cons. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually it was on the show. So yeah, we did. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of pros and cons to the technology, yeah. but it's really scary to hear how advanced it is in yes. terms of like, I mean, there's that Seinfeld AI that runs a, sh a new episode of Seinfeld every day. And, and yeah. obviously there's no humans involved and obviously it's not quite there to like make a, a human voice in characters or situations. But like I said earlier, it seems like they're, they might go the route or they could go the route of making the bare bones of a season of TV or maybe a, sh a, a film that hasn't been written yet, but then having just a few writers come in, add the human soul to it to basically just get out a product that works and is passable. Yeah, and I think we always we underestimate how fast technology right. can uh, evolve. Doubles and doubles and doubles. Yeah. And AI, it started as a joke, I think, earlier this year and later last year. It was just like a fun thing to make memes. And, and it was interesting to see the stuff that can be made with AI. But uh, we're already right now seeing real-world uh, circumstances. Uh, Paper Magazine fired their entire editorial staff. And BuzzFeed hired fired most of their editorial staff yeah. and have gone full chat GBT AI writers. And so you could definitely see, like, why wouldn't uh, another corporation do that that's involved in creativity? So right. I and think it, that is definitely worrying how fast it's spreading and how we'll underestimate before it's too – like you said, it's before it's too late, it will already be, already be implemented into so many industries. And so that's why we need to hammer this out now of, like – Writing should originate with a living human person. A human being. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it's like, it's also hard to, uh, if you're arguing with a corporate entity or a group of corporate entities that inherently doesn't see the value in why humans should be paid for their labor, we are, you're, like, you're starting at a disadvantage, right? Like, if they don't care about that, 
we're going to have to make them care about that. And I think that is a huge, again, I'm not on the negotiating committee, but that is a, we are all extremely worried about this. And it is something that if we don't lay down rules and very strict guidelines about AI use in writing, if any at all, like it's now or never. And I think it's interesting. First of all, like the Seinfeld, I mean, this is not, I'm assuming this is not an AI podcast and I am by no means an AI expert or like a futurist <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. a technologist. No, yeah. But first of all, that to me, that brings up like copyright issues. Yeah. Um, you know, anytime you, all these corporations, they own your copyright. That's another reason why we should, we as writers should be able to not only be paid fairly for the work that we created, but get residuals off of the reuse of that work. Like authors, you know, yeah. they retain the copyright to their book. So they are able to share in the profits of that book. Especially because they're getting the data to right. write shows from shows that have been written by humans. That's also like, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, well, we're just using it, you know, to just like get ideas and then we'll bring in writers to like build in the ideas. And that to me is funny because I'm like, that is sort of the role of the development executive. Like there, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard of general meetings and like OWAs, uh, open writing assignments. That is the job of the development executive to suss out material, whether it's IP or original ideas through having meetings, talking to writers and developing ideas together. It's in a funny way to me. It's like, you guys are kind of telling on yourself because you're also then telling us that like, maybe we don't need executives and I'm, I am not here publicly. Like executives are important. You, A, I can't imagine what it's like to be an executive now. It must be really scary. To, and also to be getting crazy mandates from on high from these like, you know, from your CEOs. But it is your job as an executive to pick and find and cure and curate ideas with writers. The whole point of writers is generating ideas. And if these corporations are saying, eh, we could do it ourselves. It's like, again. It's a slippery slope. It is an extremely slippery slope. Not to mention the copyright of it all. Not to mention, like... Again, I'm not an expert, but like, how does plagiarism play into this? There's there so many intellectual property issues, let alone moral, ethical, you know, workers' rights issues. Um, and, and it doesn't just affect writers. It does affect other, it affects actors. It affects directing. I think going forward at all of these other crafts, they will also have to contend with AI in their own ways. So like, but it does kind of feel like now or never. Um, and that does kind of feel like the fact that the studios aren't, you know, there was, they, I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, once the strike was called, the WGA put out basically like what our demands were, our, our pattern of demands and what the studio's responses were. And it's not to say that we didn't get anything that we wanted we actually got a huge win which is staff writers getting script fees on their scripts that they write um historically staff writers have not gotten script fees on top of their fee every other writer on a staff if you write a script you get a script fee and that's another way to like 
make a living and like have a nest egg and be able to survive kind of harder times because you made you made that money off of the script. So like we got that and that's amazing. But on things like AI, they refused to counter. They refused to even kind of discuss the topic. They just said, uh, you know, let's let's revisit this topic in a year, every year and see how technology advances. And it's like that's too late. I feel like in, in every industry, once corporations well, so major corporations, their number one goal is to make money and to profit. And of course, as soon as and, and this goes to every any industry, as soon as they find a way of generating more profit and spending less, they will double down on it and they'll push it to really spend less and earn more. And AI is an example of a huge opportunity for corporations to spend much less and profit more. And so I think that's a scary thing. And like you said, it has to be addressed now before it's too late because deregulations is the reason why the wealth gap is so bad in every industry. Mm -hmm. Deregulations and not regulating things properly. And if AI isn't regulated properly, the future looks really stark and very dark for writers and creatives. Yeah. And, you know, it's... uh, Again, I think there will always be people who will not care about the human toll that that takes. You know, I'm not sitting here saying that, like, technology shouldn't progress. Like, obviously it should. Obviously, progression in technology uh, has improved our world in in many ways. But we also need to think about the practical ramifications, the moral and ethical ramifications of this. And so, yeah, I think it, 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 is, it is a huge sticking point for this negotiation. How long did the... Both parties know that a strike was going to happen. I'm sure it wasn't just like, oh, we're striking on May 1st. Was there a buildup? Did insiders from both sides know that this is going to happen? Uh, and how long do you think or do you know that both parties were aware of a strike uh, uh, about to happen? Was it is it because the new contract was done at this point in time? Were people really anticipating this happening for sure? I think the only people who actually knew were the people sitting in the negotiation. Now, everyone has opinions and everyone, like, there's rumors, there's, everyone has their own gut and their own sort of, like, read on the industry. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of patronage. $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single patron, all of you, no matter what tier you're in, you have access to two weekly bonus episodes of Raiders of Lost Podcast. One of them is just an extra bonus episode of a movie or a topic. The other one is the weekly chat, which is exclusively only on Patreon. No one else can listen to it except for patrons. Every tier has a bunch of different perks. The $10 tier gets you access to our Discord. $25, you get your own custom episode. $100, it is the granddaddy chosen one package. You also get a private watch party. You get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. It is a sick time. So thank you so much to all of our patrons around the world. Sign up today at patreon.com. Slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast! This episode is also sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code there to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library. They have a ton of Star Wars posters. Whatever part of the franchise you're a huge fan of, they got you covered. So if you need to get some Star Wars posters... Head on over to MoviePosters.com and make sure you use our promo code RAIDERS10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order today. The deal expired May 1st, so 
there's always a negotiation period before that. It started on, I started mid-March. I don't, ex I don't remember the exact date. So once that started, obviously we can't get updates on like what is happening inside the negotiating room, but as we got closer to May 1st, we had to prepare for the, well, first of all, there was a, there was a period of negotiation and then they came back to us, the membership, and this happens in every union. Um, at a certain point, they were like, we need to call a strike authorization, which is a vote on either saying yes or no, yes to striking or no to striking if the negotiating team comes to a point when they feel like there's no other option. Now, a strike authorization vote is another, it's just another um, like negotiating tool. Like in and 2017. And that's voted on by the leaders, leadership in the WGA or whatever union, they'll vote on are we going to strike or not? And then the rest have to, everyone else has to strike? No, it's the membership that votes. Oh, okay. So the negotiating committee recommends to the board that like this, like behind closed doors, this is how negotiations are going. I think we need to have a strike authorization vote as another like tool in our negotiating arsenal. And then they go to the the entire membership and we all have to vote on whether or not we'd be willing to strike if they see fit. So we called that vote or yeah, the like leadership called that vote. We all voted. Is there a, a vote minimum requirement to go for or is it just the majority? I mean, you want to you want the best, highest majority vote you can get. And we got close to 98%. Yes. Wow, that's compelling. It's even more than in, I think, 2017 when the last, there there was a strike authorization vote called in 2017. Now there was a, we didn't strike in 2017, but the strength of that vote was enough to like push it over the, the edge and come to a deal. Scares the other party. Exactly. Okay. Now. Like what they mean business. Exactly. Of like, we, we are prepared to walk if you do not kind mm -hmm. of like come to the table more. Now, obviously... May 1st came and went, and if we're too far apart on too many important things. So that's when the negotiating committee was like, you know, we could accept the offer that they're giving us now, but it would be a real kind of like betrayal of the pattern of demands that the membership put forth. So that's why we're striking right now. So to answer your question, I mean, we, we had to prepare as if we were going to strike on May 2nd, but it also like it, there's an alternate sliding doors universe where we avoided a strike. And so, so you, yeah. just, you didn't know until, the until, day they, of. until wow. we, we all got an email. Wow. Um, yeah. So pins and needles. Um, of course, everyone had their opinions. Well, how did you feel like when you got that email? You know, I, when they, sent the email they also sent that list of like what our demands were and what their responses were once you read what their responses were at no point was i confused about why this action was taken in fact i was even more angry like to see things like so okay we've been talking a lot about like sending writers to set and what and how that stopped and how it needs to be kind of like reignited again in order to sort of like fix this pipeline the AMPTP's response to codifying sending writers to set was a showrunner can pick 
one writer from their writing staff to go to set on an unpaid internship to learn about producing, but only if it's of the productions in LA. And a lot of productions Whoa. are not in LA. So it's things like that oh my where God. you're like, oh, so they really don't care about what we do at all or understand the whole process and scope of what this job is. Another thing that I didn't know, so um, our friends who connected us, they're a writing team. That means two people writing together uh, as one entity. Um, that even though it's two people writing as one entity, they are only paid as one person. And that also means that they only get the health and pension of one person, even though they're two people. So oh that God. means that a writing team needs to, they need to work twice as hard just to get both people taken care of. The response to that was no. The response to our AI ask of like, you know, all written material should be originated and written by human living people. And their response to that was, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so it's things like that. It's, you know, if it were like nitpicky, like, oh, we asked for a 6% bump and they gave us a 5% bump. Like that's, we're like, we're like so far past that. So when I saw that list, I'm like, yeah, let's hit the streets. <laughs> you, made, you made your sign. <laughs> My yeah. God. How do you yeah. feel about? I, I keep seeing like so many actors and, and TV show hosts that are coming out and like handing out donuts and su showing support for the WJ. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. Um, a thing that's really exciting and also kind of historic happening right now is that all other entertainment unions are standing behind us. That has not happened in the in the past. Um, one of the I think most sort of monumental aspects of this is that the Teamsters have very loudly, very wholeheartedly put their support behind us, saying that if there is a picket line anywhere near them, they will not cross that picket line. So Teamsters, as we know, there are people who drive trucks. There are people who bring equipment to set. There are people who bring actors to set. There are people who drive the things that we need to make stuff onto set. And if they are saying that they will not cross picket lines in solidarity with us, that means that productions can't happen. So it, in addition to actors it's great when like famous people can amplify because then we're reaching more people who maybe you know they don't read entertainment news they don't know what's going on in the sector of the world or the the business um that's nice to hear uh but it also just i think on a larger scale is really exciting for to know that all the unions like we're all standing sort of shoulder to shoulder and we're linking arms and we're they're supporting us and we will in turn support them sag which is the union of the actors their deal is up in June. Uh, DGA directors, their deal is up in June, and the Teamsters deal is up in July. Uh oh. So, I don't know what this means for like how long this could last, but the fact that there are, that we're all basically linking arms together, um, I think, is a real show of strength that maybe we haven't had in the past. That's amazing, and also it's nice to see that the people who are working in the industry. And also craftspeople, they understand how important the writers are to what they're doing. And it's also an instrumental. Yes. And also they are everyone else is getting squeezed too. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. They, we are not the only people being severely underpaid for the work that they do, that we all do. So if we all as a labor movement can stand together and kind of 
shine a light and like put up the mirror to these corporations' faces and really have them understand the dev- like how severe the devaluation of our work is. I think that's important. I mean, yeah. thankfully we are in a period broadly, not just in entertainment, where like you know society has swung back towards you know being on the side of the worker. You know, you seeing like Starbucks employees unionizing, and I I think. Um, Public opinion, hopefully, is, like, more on our side. You know, I graduated film school in, in 2007, 2008, and I knew that there was a strike, but I didn't know what it was about. Um, and how could I? You know, like, we didn't have social media like we like we do now. We didn't have sort of the same messaging or the ability to reach as many people. But now that we do, I think, and, like, being able to come onto this podcast and talk about it and, like, reach people who maybe don't know how the business works and maybe they're hearing new stories but don't totally understand like why or what's going on like i think the broader most top line headline is like workers are not being paid what they're worth and the only way to get what we are owed is if we stand up and ask for it like all those that list of all the other strikes and what we received i think one of them you know, there was a strike because before that strike, writers didn't have pension and health. You know, you'd have to, I don't know what they had, like Cobra, or like you had, hopefully you're married and like your spouse can put you under, you know, you had to fend for yourself. And now because of the union and because we struck, we have our own pension and health fund. Things like residuals, things like streaming, like the only way we were able to get any of these things and to be paid for these things is because we stood up and we asked for them because these corporations were not going to give them. So there, there's, I yeah. think there's a misconception that if people maybe around the country, around the world, or they'll look at, oh, someone works in Hollywood. It means they make great money and life's easy and they're just living the dream. But in a lot of cases, it really is just like any industry where there's a workforce that's doing a boatload of work and they're just fighting for their tiny piece of the pie while a very few are getting the majority of the pie. And it's not all glamour. It's not all glitz and it's not easy. Yeah. And so I think things like this, things like strikes make people aware that, you know, Hollywood isn't as uh, perfect as we might think it is in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, um, you know, we're, it's an industry full of storytellers. So what's a more fun story? The glitz and the glamour or the like, mucky underbelly underbelly <laughs> of course the glitz and the glamour um but yeah i mean it's it's an industry like any other industry there are people who make lots of money in it there are lots of people who don't make lots of money in it and there are a lot of interns who make no money a lot of interns make no money <laughs> yeah and you know if we don't stand up to all of these injustices and inequalities now than when exactly yeah yeah and this in in terms of film versus tv this is affecting tv a lot more probably right because just more quickly needed scripts and productions going on tv versus film if a script's already done it's bought it's a spec script is bought yeah yes but i would say that now that all of our sister unions are standing with us um I think there's a lot more sand in the gears. So like a huge, a sort of a big issue that's going on around the issue of production happening while we're striking. Because technically, 
you know, if people are not in the WGA, the WGA can't tell other people to strike. They don't have jurisdiction over them. But if a writer is not allowed to be on set because we're striking, because they shouldn't be, because that would be scabbing, um, if you're shooting something, let's say I'm a director or an actor, let's say I'm directing you guys in the scene and you have a question for me about a line, us changing a line, that's scabbing because we're writing. We've crossed that picket line. Um, you know, I think Stranger Things just shut down in yeah, yeah. solidarity. Mm -hmm. Like, people are shutting down because they don't want, like, a lot of people, a lot of directors are also in the Writers Guild. A lot of actors are also in the Writers Guild. Like, there are a lot of hyphenates. Sure. And, you know, who wants to be a scab? Who wants to be, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't want to be a scab. Uh, I wouldn't want, you know, the whole point of this. And I think that's another thing. Um, similar to protests, but obviously the causes are different or the intention behind them are different sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. The point is to create uh, an inconvenience because by us not showing up to work, we are showing you how much you are missing by us not being there. I love um, to talk about the yeah. history of WGA strikes because this yeah. is not the first. There have been many. And it's interesting how it always coincides with new technologies yes. and also new distribution methods. And I yes. got a little history of all the WGA strikes that I would love to run through. With yes, you guys. please. Yeah, cool. yes. So the first WGA strike was in 1960. They striked for 153 days and eventually won the right to receive residuals for the showing of theatrical films on free television. So this is what free TV was changing with yes. TV in film. In 1973, there was another strike where the writers striked for 112 days, winning salary hikes as well as residual payments for movies shown on video cassettes and pay television. More new technology, new distributions. A strike coincided. 1981, a 96-day strike resulted in the landmark contract that for the first time guaranteed writers a share of producer revenues from the fast-growing pay TV home video markets. It's an old-time sentence right there. VOD, the strike yeah. idols... Uh, the strike idols many entertainment industry workers delaying the start of television seasons until November that year. In 1985, writers approved a new pact after a two-week strike, but the union leaders called it a defeat on the key issue of video cassette revenue sharing. In 1988, a fight over residual payments for TV shows broadcast in foreign countries helped trigger a 22-week strike by writers, the longest walkout by the WGA in film history. The strike forced layoffs at many studios and brought financial hardship to thousands of industry workers. The new contract included new formulas for calculating residuals and increases in minimum pay. Recently this century, in 2007-2008, there was that 100-day strike that ended with a new contract that ensured writers a stake in revenue guaranteed when their movies, television, television shows, and other creative works were distributed on the internet. Yes. The strike prompted networks and studios to order new unscripted programming and accelerate the return of others, including Paradise Hotel, Big Brother, and Celebrity Apprentice to plug programming holes during prime time. And then that cost the economy of California an estimated $2 billion. And then recently this strike, obviously you've been talking about a lot of it has to do with streaming and we have this new advent of technology again where it's distribution's changing with streaming and the boom of streaming during covid post covid which expedited the process that was inevitable we were going to move to streaming at some point but mm -hmm. that really just put the pedal to the metal and the studios just hammered down on we got to go to streaming now also the infusion of ai technology which is 
even a scarier threat, you could say, because yes. there's never been the potential elimination of writers' rooms in general because you could argue that a lot of studios are banking on maybe if this keeps developing, we can base seasons off AI, have a couple people come in and just edit it to make it sound human and actually insert a soul to the script and dialogue and characters. But we have the bones made from technology. And an important aspect to streaming that I think has to be talked about is the bouncing around of properties and IPs from one nurse, one service to the next. So uh, if a streamer like Netflix, they can either produce their own content, original series like Stranger Things, or they will license a property like The Office, like Seinfeld, right. for a two-year deal, three-year deal. And they're paying the producers and makers of that property to license it on their platform for however many years that window lasts. And so I believe from what I've read, one of the biggest problems with paying out the residuals to writers is that when these changes are made, when one when a, a property transfers from one streamer to the other streamer, when it goes from HBO Max to Hulu to Disney Plus or to HP or to Netflix, residuals aren't being properly allocated to producers and to writers of these episodes of television? Yeah. So I want to back up just a little bit and mm -hmm. say like, you know, I know we sort of like got into the weeds talking about mini rooms. <laughs> what the strike is about macro, these companies are making more money than ever. And yet amidst soaring prices in not only earnings, but the, the amount of money they are willing to dedicate to production, writers are, they are not seeing the, that rising tide. In fact, writers are getting paid less. Um, you would think that as everything is rising, yeah. writers would always also get paid more. Um, so this is like quite existential. To your point about residuals, um, when it was just broadcast television, whether cable or uh, network, what residuals are is payment anytime something you have written is reused. So reruns. So like that is how, and syndication. That's how people who worked on Friends, anything that you saw like on TBS, <laughs> anytime you saw like the same show on like multiple channels or even like on the same channel, it's like, oh, it's Sunday and they're rerunning whatever. Anytime something is reused or reshown, whoever created that show and wrote that episode, you would get a residual check. Um, with streaming, everything's on all the time and anyone can click anything they want to watch. And their claim, hilariously, is that like, well, we don't know. We don't know who's watching what when. What? And it's like, what? You keep claiming like i love when i hear like this is the most like this show is, has had the most hours streamed on xyz yeah. platform and it's like well if you are able to track that surely we we know exactly they customize many... everyone's page is different and when they go on an app it's customized to their own personality it's a weird yeah. like talking out on both sides of your mouth you either know the numbers or you don't so sometimes they know the numbers when it's like they're talking to their shareholders yeah and then when they're talking to us, they're like, oh, we couldn't possibly. We don't even know what people watch when they sign up for our Yeah, we often platforms. talk about how a lot of these streamers, especially when it comes to TV and their originals, we don't know the statistics. Really, we have some metrics we can gauge that are public. But at the end of the day, there's probably only a handful of people actually know how many people watch this show. Yeah. And then they only tell certain things. Or they only want you to know like the biggest weekend or that we yeah. had the biggest opening weekend in TV of all time. It's really an intermission 
halfway through our episodes, but we were cruising. This, I mean, yeah, it was <laughs> we so we were, it's it's great. flowing so well. And <laughs> yeah. You've been so insightful. But how about we take a quick break to go to our intermission, have some fun, get some laughs going, and then we can come back if there's anything yeah, yeah. else you want to just throw in real quick. Yeah, sure. This has been good. so terrific so far. All right, so our intermission, we usually start. Did you come up with some questions and stuff to try to stump us? Okay, I did. I think I misinterpreted the trivia one. I just have like a favorite piece of trivia that oh, that's I have. Cool. It's that's not fine. necessarily yeah. like a stump. No, yeah, yeah. It's a quiz question, Jim. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think you I worded it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's supposed to be a pop quiz. question. Anyways, but it's all good. That that works as well. <laughs> but we start with the movie quote competition, so we'll each take a turn. Okay. Saying a movie quote, and the others have to guess. Okay. I'll go first. Let's hear it. All right. You two ready? I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. Technically missing. Soon to be presumed dead. Gone. <laughs> Gone Girl. Gone yeah. Girl. <laughs> Amy Dunn. That's a good one. <laughs> I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. With the Pink my lazy, pen. lying, oblivious husband, we'd be going to prison for my murder. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, Christina, take it away. Okay. Um, this is one that I think of often because it. Well, everyone knows that Custer died at the Battle of Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is maybe he didn't. I don't know if I know that. I don't know it. We're all Titan Bombs. Oh. It's Eli Cash's intro. Yeah. It's just like, it's just, it's so perfect. I think it's so, it makes me laugh. Got a poster so in the house of that movie, too. Yeah. <laughs> Fake fan. <laughs> That's all, you, Owen Wilson's character, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah he's great. like, he's just done his he's like, writer. book reading. Yeah, he's and it's tour. like that ramp yeah. out of slow motion. You should have thrown it up. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right, here's mine. This one's, it's a little long, but it's good. You know what kind of plan never fails? No plan. No plan at all. You know why? Because life cannot be planned. Look around you. Do you think these people made a plan to sleep in the sports hall with you? But here we are now sleeping together on the floor. So there's no need for a plan. You can't go wrong without a plan. We don't need to make a plan for anything. It doesn't matter what will happen next. Even if the country gets destroyed or sold out, nobody nobody cares. Got it? I know White this. noise? Why didn't you... Let's do this in, self- in Korean. <laughs> oh. Parasite. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. That's nice, a great man. quote, man. That is a good it's quote. A good quote. <laughs> it's uh, one of the main themes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Guess this movie release here. I actually did TV. Okay. And so, so relevant. So I did what year did The Sopranos premiere and also what year did it end? I'm going to say I'm going to say it premiered in 98 and ended in 2004. I'm so bad at this. Okay, so I have a friend who was in an episode of Sopranos, but I don't know what season. Did they get murdered? (laughs) No. It's my friend Maddie. She played in a flashback Tony's sister. Oh, cool. cool. It was like a child. Nice. She gave the middle finger. It was really exciting to watch. That must be fun. Um, I don't – I'm so – I'm so bad at it. Okay. Sopranos premiered in 1999 oh, okay. and then ended in 2007. Damn. Wow. Close. It was pretty close. It was a longer run than I, I thought. Well, yeah. I guess not that, like, that many years, but not that many seasons. Yeah. Like, I, was thinking, I was thinking number of seasons, which threw me off. Yeah. Making excuses. <laughs> <laughs> Just take ownership. Of I, was no, so, I was wrong here. I was wrong. I'm so bad. Like, I am not the kind of, like, I, you know, obviously have seen so many television shows, love so many, but, like, so often people are like, oh, yeah, like, I love that season. Like, season four, that's when XYZ out. I'm like, yeah. I <laughs> I remember what happened. I just don't same. Yeah, know same. when. It's a lot of content in it's TV a lot of shows. Content. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, your turn. Um, Do you guys know the year the movie The Secret Garden came out? Secret Garden. 
The Maggie Smith Secret Garden. 1981. Okay. No. Oh, shit. <laughs> 2008 no 1993 93 way off i was way off disappointment in her voice no (laughs) it's a it's a movie that i watched many times in my childhood and it holds up it's dame maggie smith dame maggie smith she's great all right it's one fish tank what year did it come out andrea arnold's movie like 2007 2009. 2009's correct. Ah, close. close. I can close. see the poster. Yeah. It's a yeah. great movie. Great yeah. movie. I love that movie. All right. I got a movie pop quiz question for you guys. How many theatrically released movies has Ben Stiller directed? Directed. And bonus points if you can name them, but the number is totally fine. How many Reality. theatrical movies has he directed? Yeah, he's done a couple TV movies, but like in theaters, feature-length films. Reality Bites. Did he direct Zoolander? I'm going Five. No, no, I'm going six. Uh, six. Six. Walter Mitty. Oh, okay, I'm at like two and a half. <laughs> uh, He's produced a lot, too. I don't know. Six is the answer. Oh, yeah. What are the so, movies? Reality Bites, The Cable Guy, Zoolander was his Carey. third film. So he made Zoolander, it, yeah. Tropic Thunder, right. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, yes. and then Zoolander 2. And now he's doing Severance, which is a show. Orange Mocha Frappuccinos. <laughs> We too can Good die night. in freak car gasoline fight accidents. <laughs> you didn't Mermaid. think I knew what, you didn't know what I thought uh, you googly was. <laughs> I got the black lung pup. <coughs> I'm sorry, but not many people read your Time magazine. <laughs> Someone had a really good uh, uh, strike sign. It was. Um... Oh, it was like a Mugatu one. Yes. Well, no, oh, what is this? Had... Uh, is this a uh, tr- contract for ants or something? Can't even fit inside the building. <laughs> <laughs> Needs to be at least three times this size. He's <laughs> absolutely right. This episode just turned into a Zoolander quote fest. You know, yeah. God, it's I, so quotable. I, I mean, so good. And that's a movie that like my family had because the DVD was at Costco, so we were like, well, we must own this. And so we've seen. I mean, I've seen that movie like hundreds of times. Same. It's one of my most watched movies. Same. So good. It's great. Oh my god. All right, what's your trivia question? It's not a question. I mean, your trivia, but fact. it's a piece of. It's just like a, a little morsel that I've I love and I find delightful. Um, the scene in Clueless when Cher is giving her um, the more the merrier speech, you're like, and let me remind you, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> when she says Hadians, like party with the Hadians, like everyone's talking about the Hadians and why they should or should not be allowed in this country. That was not scripted by Amy Heckerling. Alicia Silverstone was just like mispronouncing Haitian. Yeah. And Amy Heckerling was like, no one tell her. No one correct her. This is perfect. And like, it's just one of the best scenes of that movie. So that's just like a little fact. I made a clip about that like two years ago. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, it was on on our TikTok. Sometimes we just post like fun movie facts. But yeah, that's a crazy one. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's such a funny scene when she says it like that. Yeah, (laughs) that's like a such a popular Halloween costume movie. I mean, I'm still searching for that perfect like yellow Mm -hmm. tartan Mm -hmm. skirt. Almost like Burberry. Is that what that pattern's called? Kind of, but there Burberry is like tan, Uh tan and red and brown, and that is like the yellow skirt, the yellow plaid skirt with like the. Yellow cardigan. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's iconic. 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 Yeah. Antoine, what do you got? In the movie Sunset Boulevard, Norma Desmond at the end famously has this line. Director's name, I'm ready for my close-up. She's like, I'm ready for my close-up. Who's the director that she name drops? 
Mr. DeMille. Yes. Thanks, nice job. <laughs> nice. I went to I went to film school. Yes. I've seen old movies. <laughs> All right, this is a great one. Let's do some movie or TV recommendations. I'm recommending The Bird, on I mean The Birds on Alfred I mean on Netflix by <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock. The Birds. There's actually three Hitchcock movies on there right now. The Birds, as well as Psycho, and Marnie's on there. Nice. So mm. The Birds is awesome. I watched it for the first time last week. Blew my mind. It's 1963. I, I, my answer is a little bit of a tough shit answer. <laughs> um, so one of the things that either showrunners, writers are going through right now with the strike, you know, we know what all the strike rules are. It's pencils down. But a step further than that is people who have shows coming out or movies coming out, they're being asked to not do promotion. Um, because the view is anything that we do to kind of help these corporations that's not kind of in line with mm -hmm. what this strike is about. Um, so I, I have a play ball answer, which I would be comfortable giving only because it's to promote my, f my friend who is a first-time feature filmmaker. His film, Land of Gold, is going to be on uh, Max May 15th. My friend Nardeep Karmi went to film school together. It's a beautiful wow. first feature. I just saw it last night. Congrats to them. Congrats to them. And he's an independent filmmaker. You know, like, I support independent film. I support independent filmmaking. Uh, but I also do not support giving help to any of these corporations. Screw right them. Now. Don't watch I the know, it's not a, no it's not a fun. <laughs> it's not a fun answer. I'm not recommending anything either. Hey. I respect it. Because I, I have answered, like, I've seen a few things recently that I really loved and I'd love to talk about. No. Um, but After the strike's over. Yes. We'll talk. Well, you can come, on, come back on. We'll talk about yeah, that. Talk, mm. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, yeah. I know it's not the high note no, 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 that no, I no, want no, to end no. on. It's, I, I, like, think, I, I like it, actually. I think stand in solidarity. Yeah. I like it. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Screw it. I'm not Great doing answer. my wreck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do have some unsubscribes. So uh, a thing that we do with our fan base is they do this joke called unsubscribe where they give us funny hate comments mm. as a joke online. It originated from real haters and Anthony would always say that person unsubscribed from our show. And mm -hmm. so now our fans always just yeah. comment. So it's they do fun. they do jokes online and uh, we always shout out the best ones. So in our Star Wars episode last week, uh, Dylan Workus wrote justice for Michael Sarah unsubscribed because <laughs> he made a Michael Sarah joke. Yeah, Michael Sarah is great. He's not in any of the Star no, no, but he referenced in the, this is the yeah, end. Yeah, sometimes the episodes just like you just blur stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I made a reference to this is the end that movie. Oh that yeah, Michael yeah. Sarah's in. I quoted Danny McBride <laughs> where he said, um, "Well, if Michael Sarah's dead, it's not a complete loss." <laughs> <laughs> we love Michael Sarah. Hilarious line. God, that movie, The Backstreet Boys. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Danny McBride is my spirit animal. I love that guy. <laughs> He's great. He's so good. <laughs> Then Grayson Younce said, you guys did Return of the Jedi Dirty Unsubscribed. We ranked it fourth on our Star Wars rankings list of yeah. movies. Return of the Jedi. Techno well, staple. No. Above it. It was Empire and then A New, New Hope, Hope, Revenge of the Sith, and then Return, Return of the Jedi. Which I think is... You Revenge of the... Wow. I love Revenge of the... He likes personally, it more than I do. Personally. I just feel like it's like... I also don't want to anger any. I mean, I love Star Wars. I grew up on Star Wars. You know, it's like probably one of the first. They're gonna movies come I ever after saw. you. I think all the originals are the best. I would say, like, 
what, isn't it just safe to say the the original is just like just put that in your top three? No, so exactly. the younger well the, the exactly. younger generations they think revenge is the best. Oh, and I, I respect yeah. revenge. I like sure, it but you know, the it's the best trilogy. Yeah, sure. Oh, the for original sure, for sure. OG. The scoring is incredible. Yeah. But I mean, Empire is just the best. Untouchable. Yeah. Techno Staple wrote, Nolan made following for $10,000. Actually, he made it for 6000 Unsubscribed. <laughs> Just kidding. You guys get 98% of your facts right, which is a lot better than a lot of us can do. So, That's so thanks, funny. pal. That's actually like, actually? <laughs> actually. Yeah. Batman Who Laughs, Attack of the Clones is way better than Solo. Unsubscribed. They're both, I wrote they're both terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen Solo. Don't. It's, you don't need to. It's a move. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, right. you know, right. I was disappointed. Yeah. We'll see it eventually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Han Solo, and they, yeah, I mean, it's Harrison Ford. He's Han Solo. They're the same person. It's tough. Yeah, it didn't work. Emmerich Jess- did a great job, though. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Alden yeah. Emmerich did great. Jesse M wrote Solo ranked higher than Attack of the Clones. Unsubscribed. <laughs> Sorry, bud. Ellie Noah T Rise of Skywalker not last. Unsubscribe. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Cameron Nachos wrote Snope a Star Wars movie do you guys even like Star Trek unsubscribe <laughs> oh, yeah, we're you, terrible at names no you yeah. called him Snope I called him Snope <laughs> Snoke the big bad the, right yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, like did you say Snope <laughs> we posted uh, the new Oppenheimer poster with Killian Murphy and then Gavin J wrote no floating head poster unsubscribe <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite that, that was a good one opening weekend is gonna be huge Huge. That and Barbie. Bonkers. July 21st. In the week before Mission Impossible 7 comes out. July That's going to be a wacky double feature. Yeah, well, you how... do Barbie second, obviously. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you want to end Every... fun. That's, oh. I think that's a great, great way to approach end it. End fun. Oh, I've always been saying I'm going to see Barbie first and Oppenheimer at night. No. no I, I just want to see Oppenheimer like first, first, course, first, second course. I just, I just, Oppenheimer is my most anticipated film, so that's my number one. I got to do of that. The year, yeah. Oppenheimer. We're huge Nolan fans. Very excited. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps our intermission. Christina, is there anything else you want to bring up, or Anthony, you have any other questions or anything? Or I need. I mean, we covered a lot, and I was just happy to hear you, your thoughts and your perspective on everything. I mean, it's we learned a lot. It was like the most informative episode we've ever done. I think. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you asking because I know, um, you know, obviously, Hollywood seems glamorous, and you know, it's. Uh, I think the important thing is like talking about. The solidarity we're feeling, the fact that we're all sort of united in this cause. And it's not just us. It's all workers. It's not just in entertainment either. It's like the only way we can affect change short, like, I don't know, legislation. And like that's not going to happen. We need, we, us workers need to stand up for ourselves and for each other. So I'm excited yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, Thank I mean, 98% me. of y'all voted in agreement, so that's incredible support. And unions yeah. are vital to the workforce in every industry, in every country. It prevents the people in power from taking advantage of the people who do all the work, and they're a necessary part of any industry. Yeah, so. and also, like, you know, safety measures. There are myriad oh, yeah. benefits, mm-hmm. but yeah. Are there important. any places people can go online, any resources that they can check out to support you all, or just, like, sharing the message? Yeah, I mean... There's the WJ contract website, which anyone is free to peruse um, <laughs> some of our talking points. I would say um, the Entertainment Community Fund, um, if you are so inclined and are able to uh, donate to it, it entertainment workers all across the board, not just writers, you know, crew members, assistants, 
if people are facing financial hardship, they can apply for um, grants and loans through this fund. Um, that would be one way to help. That's amazing. Um, people can join the picket lines with us. Yeah, if you're or in if LA, you want to like all, drop off food or in New York, they're every day, right? Pretty um, much all over. They're every the place. every yeah. work day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think maybe just. Uh, I think I think what is important, bare minimum, is just understanding that this is like a this is like a workers' rights and like a a fair wage mm-hmm. fight. Yeah, which no matter what industry you work in, I think is like a that's a thing that anyone can understand. Absolutely, we're all sort of being Squeeze. our work. All of our work is sort of being devalued, and at a certain point, you gotta stand up and mm-hmm. take a stand against that. One hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining the episode. We appreciate. It. We hope you all enjoyed this special episode explaining the WGA strike again perspective from Christina. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons: Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Coching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.